If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We are in the midst of Amos' third message to the powers that be of Israel. We were looking for the last couple of weeks at verses 1 through 17, which is a lament. So you may, may recall that we, you know, we noted how a- Amos uses this interesting method. He encourages to lament something that's not yet happened. Uh, but they might as well go ahead and weep and wail and grieve because judgment is coming. And so it's kind of a, a, a disconcerting way to speak. At least that's how his listeners should take it. And now, now as we get into verse 18, he's still in the same message, but now he's going to transition from a lament to a declaration of woe. And this is language we've heard before in, in the prophets. We even, we even find Jesus doing this. Uh, so, but it, it's, a, it's a kind of a natural transition he's about to make. Uh, so he's, he's told them, go ahead and weep and grieve. Uh, and now, now he's giving these foreboding kinds of words. It actually takes us uh, through chapter 6 and verse 8, uh, but we're, we're only going to read the, the rest of chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in the highways, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. So that's where we were last week, looking at this intense kind of language, that reference in verse 17 that very clearly takes us back to Egypt, the passing through of the death angel. And then he jumps into the woe. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sukkuth, your king, and Shuun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. I have some pictures I want to show you, all right? These are not family pictures, all right? So, some pictures, I don't know how well you can see them. Hopefully you can. So you see on my right-hand side, your left, we have a gentleman setting up there to take a picture. Actually, what you don't see is that he's taking pictures of bear cubs. And behind him looks like mama, all right? Then you see the other gentleman who's got himself uh, quite the kill there. And uh, he's found a friend as well. 
right behind him, who seems to be that mountain lion, seems interested in, uh, in what it is that he has killed. All right, go on to the next one. So here's a guy just enjoying a day at the beach, uh, relaxing and not, not aware at all. Now, what, so what, what do all of these pictures have in common um, other than a dangerous situation? What, what's kind of the common theme throughout all three of them? They're unaware. These people are, are just oblivious, right? They have no idea of the danger that they're in, that, that they, they think everything's all well and good, right? They're, they're relaxed, they're doing their thing, they're enjoying the moment, they're, they're smiling, all right, they're posing for a picture, or they're just, you know, floating on their backs, not recognizing the eminent danger that they are in. You know, these are kind of extreme examples, but my guess is we, we would rather not think about how often we might be in dangerous positions and don't even know it, right? Probably rather not know the opportunities that have come our way without even realizing it, just smiling our way through it, oblivious to what were some perhaps really dangerous moments. You know, this imagery is interesting because I think it does contain a spiritual reality. I mean, that there are people who live their days all around us. Our culture, they're in the city, they're all across the world. People who live out their days and have no idea the danger they're in. People who assume that everything is going just fine, their life is good, uh, may, may, maybe they're, they're happy, maybe they're successful, maybe they're healthy, but we've got people all across the planet who don't give one single thought to God, to His Word, and for sure not Christ crucified and resurrected, but they live their lives as if everything is just fine. They have no idea. They're a guy floating on their back, and there is a hammerhead shark underneath them. No concept of the dangers that they're in. I think this is an apt description of what we just read here in Amos chapter 5. This is where Israel finds herself. She, she is in a place where, where she is in very real and immediate danger. But she is utterly oblivious to it. She is utterly aloof to it. In fact, Israel thinks everything's just hunky-dory. It's all good. Life is good. D during the time of Amos, as we've talked about in the, when we introduced the book, the time of Jeroboam II, he's the king of Israel, and life is good in Israel. That they, they are wealthy economically. Uh, they have demonstrated power militarily. They have fortified locations. Um, things seem to be, from a certain perspective, if you look at the books, things seem good. And the last thing they could ever imagine is that God is about to strike. They are absolutely oblivious to the dangers they're in. And so, part of Amos' ministry is just this, to ensure that Israel gets the message. Now, we do want to be clear here. When I say they're oblivious to it, it's not because they're ignorant. No, they've had prophet after prophet, generation after generation. They're not ignorant to it. 
They have simply chosen to ignore it. Those are two different ideas, by the way, right? It's one thing to be genuinely ignorant. It's another thing to just ignore. And that's what they've done. They've just assumed that these so-called prophets can't actually be speaking for God because of the language of doom and destruction that they are predicting. But in fact, that is what is about to come. And so, as we turn our attention again to Amos chapter 5 and to these declarations of woe, we we see Amos now ratcheting up this kind of language to, to make sure that the people he's talking to, and again, we recognize when I say Amos speaking the message, this is God's message. In fact, at some points in this book, God speaks in the first person through Amos. And so, so, the, so I, I'm identifying this as Amos's message, but you recognize the distinction. Amos wants to make sure they understand the very real, imminent danger that is posed to them. He called them to lament, all right, go ahead and weep and wail and cry over something that has not happened, but it's going to happen, so you might as well go ahead and warm up, all right, get ready for it. And now he pronounces woe. Again, as I mentioned just uh, just a minute ago, the, the pronouncement of woe is a common theme. You see it in a lot of the prophets, and then you see it in Jesus, right? He pronounces woe. It, it, is, it is a way to emphasize a, a couple of things. One, it, it is a kind of a, a particular prophetic formula that, ge- that gives the prophet a way of identifying the sins of the people and then identifying the judgment that is to come. It is intended to elicit foreboding. It is is a way of really saying, all right, your circumstances are now as serious as they could possibly be. But here's one consistent characteristic that, that I have found tracks through just about every instance of woe you find coming out of a prophet's mouth. Maybe not all of them, but most of them. They are almost always speaking to people, groups of people, who think they're fine, who don't have any idea of the danger that they're in. This is for sure the case. When Jesus talks to the religious leaders and he pronounces woe on them, these religious leaders had no concept that they were running the risk of facing God's judgment. In fact, had you asked them, had Jesus given them an opportunity to speak, they would have said that they are actually doing exactly what God wants them to do. That they are in the position of favor and blessedness. And and the same probably would have gone for these folks in Israel. They certainly understood that they were God's chosen people, and they thought just that meant something. And so because of that, there was no concept operating within them that they were about to face God's judgment. So, in beginning in verse 18, going through chapter 6 and verse 8, Amos is going to pronounce two woes upon them, though the word woe shows up three times. The second and third use of the woe is about the same woe, all right? We'll get to that next time. But that, that is, that is, it is, there's only two of them, I think. And really, the focus is on not only her sin, but her ignorance, and by that I mean the ignoring of the day of the Lord. She is willfully rejecting the message that has been coming from God's prophets. And so it's a reminder to us, God's people should not take for granted God's favor upon them and assume they'll never face chastisement. If we want to have a takeaway, we should just never assume that God 
God for some reason would not do whatever it takes to rid his people of their sin. This is what he's going to do with Israel. So Amos is going to identify two false views that the people have of the day of the Lord. Here's why they're in such a dangerous place, because they have terrible theology. This, by the way, is often the first step to being in a very dangerous place. Sometimes it's even the last one, and maybe even all the steps in between. But as soon as you start to find cracks and, and, and leaking in people's theology, you better keep, keep an eye on that. As soon as that begins to, to, to move, to crack, to wobble, to begin to shift in the sand, as soon as that begins to happen, then you should stand up and take notice because there, there's real danger coming. And this, this is where Israel finds herself. Two false views of the day of the Lord. Number one, and if you want to take notes, you'll have some blanks to fill in. Number one, a misunderstanding of the nature of the day of the Lord. A misunderstanding of the nature of the day of the Lord. So right off the bat, we can tell that they don't really seem to get what, um, what it means to talk about the day of the Lord, because notice again what it says in verse 18, "'Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you?' So we can read between the lines here. Here's what's being implied. The folks in Israel, it's not that they don't know the language of the day of the Lord. Keeping in mind, this is a major theme of Amos, and as we've already reflected on it, the day of the Lord being that language that speaks to the times in which God intentionally judges sin. So there have been a lot of days of the Lord throughout history. Old Testament um, in particular, and we know there's an ultimate and final day of the Lord coming. But that language is consistently used to, to warn then of God's judgment to come on the earth. What these folks in Israel are thinking, they're thinking, yeah, we want this day of the Lord to come because, because this, this is the day we'll be vindicated. They're, they're looking for it. They have no concept that what Amos is saying is thou art the man, all right? It, it's you. You're the ones who are going to be the target of the day of the Lord. Instead, they think this is going to be a good thing. And so, the word of chastisement, woe to those who, who seem to long for it, desire this day to come. It's not going to be good for you. And so, what Amos is now going to do is he's going to correct then two issues. So, he's, he's, not only is he dealing with this idea of the day of the Lord, now he's going to offer two corrections to how they understand the nature of the day of the Lord. Letter A, rather than being a day of victory, it's going to be a day of judgment. Rather than being a day of victory, as far as Israel's concerned, all right, that's, then keep in mind that's the context. As far as Israel's concerned, rather than being a day when they enjoy victory, the enemies are defeated, and they rise again to the days of Solomon and all of his glory, because that's what they've got rolling around in their heads. Instead of it being that, it's going to be a day when they're going to be judged. No, notice how verse 18 finished, because, because he's asked the question, what good is the day of the Lord going to be to you? And the answer is, well, it's not. I mean, he's, this is a rhetorical question, right? It's a question that already comes with the answer embedded in it. Is a way to teach. What good is it? It's not going to be any good because for you it will be darkness and not light. 
So, so common theme, right, in, in, the, in the prophets to talk about God's judgment, connecting darkness with judgment, light with God's salvation or rescue. And so, he's telling them, when this day of the Lord, and is, and is there not a vivid image there? The day of the Lord is going to be darkness for you. So, it's a pretty clever twist of the imagery, right? Day but it's going, to be a, it's going to be a day of darkness. And then, he, and then, like any good preacher, he gives an illustration. And he gives a really good illustration. So then he says in verse 19, It'll be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. So here, here's what he's saying. You, you all think that this is going to be a good day for you. It's not. Instead, here's the chain of events. It's like the guy who sees a lion, turns to run the other way, and comes face to face with a bear, happens to find his way around the bear, rushes into the house, leans against the wall, trying to catch his breath, only to be bit by a poisonous viper. It's a pretty graphic image. I mean, it's pretty vivid the way he describes this. And so not only is he saying, so there's judgment to come, but it's inescapable judgment. It would be kind of like saying, you can run, but you can't hide. You might get out of this, but you're just going to come in contact with this. It's just going to come and get you back here. So he's he's warning them, you don't understand this day. This day is not going to be for your benefit. It's going to be a day of darkness. And so then he, he returns to that imagery in verse 20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So that's pretty interesting imagery. Again, that he wants to make sure that they understand that the day of the Lord that is about to come, it's not going to be a time of victory for them. It's going to be a time of victory for the Lord. And it would be a time of victory for the faithful people of God, but for them, for the evildoer, for the rebellious, for, the, for these folks who God is coming to chastise their sin, it is going to be a very dark day. Darkness will come instead of light. Now, here's what I want to do for just a moment, because the imagery that's used here in Amos is really important to help us understand in a little more fullness, one of the beloved passages we hear every year at Christmas time. But perhaps we don't associate this, these verses with the right context. But this gives us an opportunity maybe to, to, to do a little bit of Bible study that fills out our understanding of how one passage of Scripture helps us then understand better another. So I want you to Take your Bibles, now turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I can't imagine there's a person in the room that hasn't heard some of these words.
we're, at, we're actually going to fall back to chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah has a similar kind of ministry to Amos, though Isaiah and Amos would not have run in the same circles. Not that they were not both faithful men, they were. Um, Isaiah was educated, elite, and I mean that in in good ways, not in a pejorative kind of way. I just mean uh, the the circles that Isaiah… Isaiah would have been very comfortable uh, in the very seat of places of power. Um, Isaiah was well-spoken, he was well-respected, he was well-known, um, and, and so Isaiah just occupied a different kind of position than, than the fig farmer from the country, all right? But they both serve the same basic function, and that is delivering a message to Israel, to the northern kingdom, judgment is coming, and specifically to warn of an Assyrian attack. The Assyrians are going to come, and this, this is what Isaiah is warning of in chapter 8, that the Assyrians will come and they will invade the northern kingdom. And, and he describes it like this, beginning in chapter 8, verse 21, they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward this is the people of the land, then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You've multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdoms, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, you've heard those words before, right? You've sung songs with those words in it. You've gone to a very well-known production of Handel's Messiah, all right, that features this prominently. These, These are words we are familiar with, but reading that text in light of Amos's woe, I hope puts that in a little better context, because this gets repeated in the New Testament, right? Those who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. When we hear the word darkness, we usually associate that with a couple of things. On the one hand, we might associate that with 
you know, just, just living in the midst of, of sin and death and the curse, right? Darkness being that which characterizes the darkness or the, the lack of knowledge and truth in the world. And that there's certainly something of that there. We also hear the word darkness and we think of gloom. We think of uh, grief. We think of sorrow. But do we, do we think of judgment? They are walking in darkness because they endured the judgment of God. The darkness that they are experiencing is part of the consequences of the sins of the land. And even though they, they, they are able to come back you know, from, from exile, there is this, this work under Ezra, and though that focuses mostly on Jerusalem, we have you know, we have evidence there are people who spread then even into where the northern kingdom was. We recognize that by the end of the Old Testament period, they, they for nearly 500 years, will have no prophet to speak and therefore no new revelation from God. In essence, God goes silent, those who are walking in darkness, because God brought, inflicted upon them the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was not something that they should have invited. It's not something that they should have wanted. It was not going to be a day of victory for them. It was a day of judgment. And when that day came and the nation was scattered, when the Assyrians come and scatter the nations, that, that is a day in which they enter into darkness. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. This is the darkness that they're walking in. Yes, it's the darkness of being in the world of sin. It's, it's the darkness of being in grief. It's the darkness of needing and longing for a Messiah. But the reason they're needing and longing for that Messiah is because they have faced the heavy hand of God's judgment. That's the darkness. And so Isaiah comes to us and fills out the picture of Amos. So I thought it might be maybe a helpful way, because Amos doesn't always end on a good note. All right, our Wednesday nights don't always end on a good note, but it will, I hope, tonight. Because Isaiah then takes us beyond the darkness that Amos warns of. And looking at Isaiah in comparison with Amos, then we see this greater promise to come. Those who are walking in darkness, under the heavy hand of what was the judgment of God upon them, no prophetic voice, no prophetic word, no, no prophet to speak, and no revelation of God coming to them. And what is it that happens in the story of Christmas? What do they receive? John the Baptist, who will prepare the way. And the Word made flesh. God gives them a prophet, and He gives them the revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. Those who are walking in darkness see a great light. So God does not leave His people in the days of darkness. They shouldn't be inviting it because they misunderstand it. It's not going to be good for them. Nevertheless, God has still made them a promise. And in looking at that language and then tagging in Isaiah here, we see there is a promise embedded in these prophetic messages that remind us that though God is going to be at bring, again, He's going to bring a heavy hand of judgment upon Israel, He's not going to leave her. There will be dark days. They will walk in darkness for a period of time, but God is going to bring them light. And He's going to bring them Christ. The Messiah will come. But until that time, they are going to face God's judgment. And so, for Amos's day, the people would do well to hear the woe pronounced upon them. Don't long for this day to come. 
Don't think this is going to be good for you. This is not going to be good for you. This is going to be a day of darkness and not a day of light. All right, next week we'll keep on pushing through. Uh, look at that next part of Amos uh, that, is, um, that is fairly well known. I find the words, we read them all, I find the next set of words to be particularly important for us as God's people. It's another one of the ways in which um, the, the prophets help us with what are very current and relevant issues. We will address once again the issue of justice and injustice. What does that mean? What does it not mean? It's verse 24. You might have recognized it when we read it. Verse 24, it was Martin Luther King's most often repeated verse. Um, in, in his, when, he, when he quoted the Bible, this was his, his, the number one, is what I've read, the number one verse he repeated was this one in a number of speeches and contexts that justice would run down um, uh, like a river and righteousness would, would flow. But then to read the words God has for the attempts the people make at worship, those are really solemn words to me. They're, they're really challenging words to me. And we'll once again just take some time and reflect deeply on how seriously God takes our worship and the fact that there could be other hypocritical components in our life that renders our worship not only fruitless, but offensive to God. Not because we're not doing the components of worship right, We can get all the components of worship right and still be wrong because there could be something else over here that results in us bringing that which God would describe as noise, just noise. So that's what we'll take a look at next week as we think more about how Amos warns of these misconceptions of the day of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. Grateful that we could pray together, that we could study your word. We thank you for the testimony that we heard. Father, may we continue to be mindful of the opportunities given to us to be faithful to your word. God, we, we are encouraged by the example of a man like Amos, who just with such boldness spoke faithfully, courageously, intentionally. And Father, may we possess some of that, recognizing that that there is a similar call on us all, maybe not in these specifics, but in, in the obligation to serve as your ambassadors to a world that is in imminent danger. And so may we be faithful to communicate your truth to them. I thank you for these who've gathered tonight and their willingness to be a part of this time of prayer and time in your word. I pray they would know your hand upon them. Grant them wisdom and insight for the days to come, that they might live faithfully and to your glory. And gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.